scripture again is taken from 1 Samuel chapter 4, or chapter, uh, yeah, chapter 4, beginning in verse 1, and we'll read uh, the first 11 verses. That's 1 Samuel chapter 4, verses 1 through 11. And the word of Samuel came to all Israel. And now Israel went out to battle against the Philistines. They encamped at Ebenezer, and the Philistines encamped at Aphek. The Philistines drew up in line against Israel, and when the battle spread, Israel was defeated before the Philistines, who killed about 4,000 men on the field of battle. And when the people uh, came to the camp, the elders of Israel said, Why has the Lord defeated us today before the Philistines? Let us bring the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord here from Shiloh, that it may come among us and save us from the power of our enemies. So the people sent to Shiloh and brought from there the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord of Hosts, who was enthroned on the cherubim. And the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were, were there with the Ark of the Covenant of God. As soon as the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord came into the camp, all Israel gave a mighty shout so that the earth resounded. And when the Philistines heard the noise of the shouting, they said, What does this great shouting in the camp of the Hebrews mean? And when they learned that the Ark of the Lord had come to the camp, the Philistines were afraid, for they said, A God has come into the camp. And they said, Woe to us! For nothing like this has happened before. Woe to us! Who can deliver us from the power of these mighty gods? These are the gods who struck the Egyptians with every sort of plague in the wilderness. Take courage and be men, O Philistines, lest you become slaves to the Hebrews as they have been to you. Be men and fight. So the Philistines fought and Israel was defeated. And they fled every man to his home, and there was a very great slaughter, for 30,000 foot soldiers of Israel fell, and the ark of God was captured. And the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, died. They got richly blessed both the reading and the hearing of his holy word. Now, I've got to first point out that as we look at this passage, it is, there is a very strong parallel to what takes place here and what takes place with the building of the golden calf. Different scenarios slightly, but very strong parallels. So what I want to do, and this is the other side of what we were talking about this morning, where David is, uh, in, in, encourages the people of God to be committed to what God has said in his word. Because all that we have from God, he has revealed to us in his word. And so this is the other side of that. This is, this, is, this is what we can be reduced to. So there are eight things that we want to look at uh, from this passage and um, find our final resting place and what God would have us to know. First off, there are two things that should be noted that puts this shameful incident in its proper perspective. Two things that should put it in its proper perspective. The first one is the silence of God that is referenced in chapter 3. In chapter 3, verse 1, 
It says, now Samuel was ministering to the Lord in the presence of Eli, and the word of the Lord was rare in those days. There was no frequent vision. Now what that means is, and by vision, he doesn't mean they, they see things. Vision is another way of saying revelation. So the point that's being made is that, yes, the law of Moses is made available to the people, but there was no, there was, God rarely spoke to them. He rarely gave them a direct word. Now, I would argue that part of what we see in the Old Testament, whenever God withholds his word from his people, it is an act of chastening. In fact, that's what we see elsewhere in the prophets. I think it's Amos that that promises a day when there will be a famine in the land. Not a famine for bread, but a famine for the word of God. So one of the ways in which God disciplines or chastens his people, we see this especially in the Old Testament, is that he withholds a word from them. And then we see later in the New Testament that part of his chastening is that he not only, he he gives them a word, but he allows distortion all around. He allows, he sends the, the strong delusion. He sends, he allows the false prophets so that those who really know him and love him through his word will be, uh, will stand out. So the first thing that we see here is God's silence. God's silence as an act of judgment, and one of the reasons this becomes significant in this scenario is because the displeasure of God is really the theme of these early years of the ministry of of Samuel. So the displeasure of God is clearly evident because we see from chapter 3, verse 1, that there was rarely a word from God. But then the second thing to note that helps give this statement or this this incident context is the affirmation of Samuel as a prophet of God. God was silent, but the whole reason that it's mentioned in chapter 3 that there was that the word from the Lord was rare in those days is to make room for the fact that he is now about to speak more definitively to them. In chapter 3, verses 19 through chapter 4, verse 1, here's what we read about Samuel. And Samuel grew, and the Lord was with him, and let none of his words fall to the ground. And all Israel, from Dan to Beersheba, knew that Samuel was established as a prophet of the Lord. And the Lord appeared again at Shiloh. For the Lord revealed himself to Samuel at Shiloh by the word of the Lord, which leads to the opening statement in chapter 4, and the word of Samuel came to all Israel. So when it says that the word of Samuel came to all Israel, it is another way of saying that Samuel was an instrument through whom a reliable word of God came to all Israel. So the two things that help to give context to the shameful incident in our text is, one, the silence of God that has secondly been broken. God has intentionally and consciously withheld his word. It's almost as if to say, you didn't want to hear it anyways, so he just shut up for a moment. And then he begins to speak again, and it's affirmed through Samuel. Hold in mind, by the way, as it relates to Samuel, Samuel is an affirmed prophet of God. All of Israel recognizes that. 
Well, that brings us to a second statement here that, that prepares us for this statement or this, this incident. In chapter 9, verses uh, 3 through 6, in chapter 9, verses 3 through 6, we will see how lightly the people of God held to the word of God. In other words, the ministry of the prophet had been trivialized by the people of God. In chapter 9, beginning in verse 3, of course, this is a story that, or this chapter is what leads to Saul becoming the first king of Israel. But beginning in verse 3, it says, Now the donkeys of Kish, Saul's father, were lost. So Kish said to Saul, his son, Take one of the young men with you uh, and arise and look for the donkeys. And he passed through the hill country of Ephraim and passed through the land of Shalisha, and, uh, but they did not find them. And they passed through the land of Shalayim, and they, but they were not there. Then they passed through the land of Benjamin, but they did not find them. When they came to the land of Zuf, Saul said to his servant, who was with him. Come and let us go back, lest my father cease to care about these donkeys and become anxious about us. But he said to them, Behold, there is a man of God in this city, and he is a man who is held in honor. All that he says comes true. So now, let us go there. Perhaps he can tell us the way that we should go. Now, here's what we, here, here's the second thing. God was silent for a number of years in Israel because the people paid little regard to his word. He broke his silence by affirming that Samuel was now an approved prophet from God. In our text, the men are about to go to war. But guess what they don't do? They don't call on Samuel. Here's how the ministry of the word has become trivialized. When you lose your donkeys, turn to God. But I can fight my own enemies. There is how the word of God has become trivialized even among the people of God. So in chapter 9, we know, in fact, notice what the writer said, what he says in, in, chapter, in chapter 9 when, when, Saul, when Saul's servant tells him about Samuel. It says, there is a man of God that we know because there is everything that he says comes true. In other words, they knew Samuel's address. They knew his ministry. They knew that he was affirmed by God. That brings us to the third thing. The fact that the Israelites are defeated in battle, in verse 2, is indicative of something being wrong. Now, let me clarify that. Israel, national Israel, Old Testament national Israel, which was a Christian theocracy. And in this theocracy, that meant when they went to war, it was as if God went to war when they warred for the right things. Anytime God's people lost in war, it is because they did something wrong. Because God's people, were, they had him as their God, and supposedly they weren't supposed to go to war unless God himself affirmed it. And so the fact that Israel loses in warfare 
is an indicator, an indicator that something indeed is wrong. We see this cycle repeated in the book of, of, of uh, Judges that the people of God would sin and the Lord would put them under the, under the, the burden of their enemy, whether it's military uh, um, uh, defeat or whether it's economic strain, but he would put them under the thumb of their enemies. The people would repent, the Lord would overthrow the enemy, and they would be victorious again. So the very fact that they lose to the Philistines, it is, it is indicative of the fact that something indeed is wrong. But here's the fourth thing. In verse 3, we are told that there's something that the elders do right and something that they do wrong. In verse 3, it says that after they have, have, have lost, uh, in, in verse 3, it says... Um, yeah, it says that then the elders of Israel, that the elders spoke up and they said, why has the Lord defeated us today? Why has the Lord defeated us today? Well, that's the part they got right. Anytime God's people lose in battle, it is not them, it is not God getting beat. It is God doing the beating. And sometimes the stick that he uses to beat his people is the enemy that they face. So the, the elders are right. They are right in saying that God is the one who is the cause of their defeat. But then they say something that's wrong. They are like the proverbial cow that gives a good bucket of milk and then kicks it over. And so it's not good enough to, they, they say something that's good and profound. Why is it that God has defeated Israel today? Why has he given us over to the Philistines? And at that point, it would have been a good time to do one of two things, if not both. One is pray, and the other is to call for the man of God who has the word of God. Because, after all, if you call for the man of God when you lose your donkeys... Don't you think you would call for the man of God when you've lost to an enemy that you know you should have defeated? Well, that brings us to what they said wrong. What they said right is by raising the question that the defeat that they experienced was a defeat from the hand of God. But what they do wrong is they come up with the wrong conclusion. So in verse 3, here's what they say. Let us bring the ark of the covenant of the Lord here from Shiloh, that it may come among us and save us from the power of our enemies. Now, brothers and sisters, I guess perhaps one of the reasons that, that they would rather turn to the ark than to turn to God is because the ark can't talk back. You see, they get to do all of the talking. If God speaks, and if they have indeed been defeated by God, then there is an R word that's going to be involved, and it's not rejoicing. The R word is repent. The Lord would put it upon the hearts of his people to repent and turn from their sin, and then they would, they would hear from the Lord but sometimes, as much as we talk about the word of the Lord, the word of the Lord, who finds our lost car keys and remote controls, and he can give us a raise on our job, but we are afraid to go to him when we fail. 
And so in this instance, the elders of Israel, they conclude that rather than going to the man of God, they would, here's what, here's what we needed. Here's what, here's what will bring us a difference in the battlefield. We need the Ark of the Covenant. So therefore, rather than seeking a word from the Lord, the elders reason among themselves. Now hold in mind, God's word is now available. They have proof of God's word being available through the affirmed ministry of Samuel. But when men are in sin, they often don't want to hear from God. Or we try to program God so that we can hear what we want to hear. Well, here's a fifth thing, and that's a statement. The statement is this, unintentional idolatry and superstition arises when we isolate and elevate what God has given over what God has said. Again, here's the statement, unintentional, and I say it's unintentional, uh, in the case, we said this is similar to the golden calf incident, but there are, there are differences as well as distinctions. And one of the differences is that, is that Aaron knew he was building something that was unauthorized. Okay, He knew that he was going against the word of God because he had just heard from Moses that you are not to make any graven images. So he knew he was going against what God had required. In this case, it's unintentional because what they have, have, have focused on is the Ark of the Covenant which God himself told them to construct. He's the one who gave the dimensions as to how the Ark was to be built as well as to, as to how it was to be housed and then even transported when they moved. So here's the statement, unintentional idolatry and superstition arises when we isolate and elevate what God has given over what God has said. The emphasis here is when we isolate and elevate. In other words, we're not talking about things that have just entered into the sanctuary where no one knows how it, where it came from or how it got there. We're talking about a sacred piece of furniture that God has given to his people as an, a physical, visible symbol of his covenant presence with his people. As a matter of fact, the Ark of the Covenant is so sacred that the Lord says between the wings of the cherubim, which were on, the, on each end of the top that was on the Ark of the Covenant, that was where the blood was spread. And God says, that's where I will meet with you. It's called the mercy seat. Martin Luther, in his interpretation of the book of Romans, identifies Christ as being for us the mercy seat, which is the lid that was on the Ark of the Covenant where God said he would meet with his people, and that's where the blood of atonement was supposed to be sprinkled. So there obviously is some significance that is associated with the Ark of the Covenant. But hold in mind, the Ark of the Covenant was also, as it relates to the furniture and everything else concerning the tabernacle, 
or because this is before the building of the temple, everything, it was, it was only one piece of furniture. There were also lampstands and candlestands. There was the curtain of separation. There were the courts and there were the altars. And the point is, the Ark of the Covenant was not standalone. It was in conjunction with other furniture and other things that God himself had pronounced. So the problem is not that they had a sacred view of the Ark of the Covenant. The problem is they isolated it from everything else because in the Ark of the Covenant, by the way, once they came out of the wilderness, the rod of Aaron was in the inside of the Ark, the testimony of God or the ten, a copy of the Ten Commandments, some manna that they had eaten while they were in the wilderness, all of that was preserved inside of the Ark of the Covenant, all of the physical things that reminded them of the provisions that God had given to his people while they were in the wilderness, who is the God of the Ark. But here's what they did. They isolated the box. They don't talk about uh, the presence of God. They don't even talk about what's in the ark itself. They isolate it from everything else that God has given to them. And we are told, by the way, in the book of Hebrews, that everything in the tabernacle and everything in the temple was according to a heavenly pattern. So what they did is cut something out of that pattern. And reach their own conclusion with it. But not only did they isolate it from everything else, they elevated it above everything else. They isolated it from all of the other furnishings that God used to communicate his grace and provisions for his people. But then they elevated that symbol above everything, including God himself. We're not saying that there wasn't something significant about the ark. It was. But God's word, as we saw this morning in Psalms 138, God's word and name are exalted above everything else. And whatever else the ark is, when it is isolated from everything else that God has provided, and when it is, when it is elevated even over God himself, then it ceases to, to be what God has intended it to be for his people. Again, we do see a pattern with the golden calf. Origen, the great church historian, put it this way concerning the golden calf. Origen says that God told the children of Israel to plunder the gold of the Egyptians, but he did not tell them to make a, a God out of it. In the same way, God told the children of Israel to take the ark, and he told them how to construct the ark. But look at the way they view the ark. They, say, they assume that the reason that they have lost in battle is because the ark was not present, and that relieves them of the responsibility of saying, maybe we lost because we rebelled. Maybe we have lost because we have sinned. In any event, this is what I call unintentional idolatry and superstition. Yes, I know that some people have created all sorts of, 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 of talismans and all sorts of trinkets and have claim for these things that uh, some kind of spiritual power. I don't know if any of you remember the old prayer cloths. 
And I had a cousin, his grandmother believed in that stuff, and, and he would spend the night over my house and take off his shirt and had on his T-shirt, and there was a, a red square of cloth that was pinned to his T-shirt. And I asked him, what was it? And he says, his grandmother. That's grand, Granny Love, right? His grandmother had given him this prayer cloth. Brothers and sisters, there's nothing. And, and I, what they do and what people have done is they've taken the scriptures from where it says that they took the clothing of the prophets or of the apostles and they took pieces of that and bless, and the people were healed and blessed by it. But that doesn't say you do likewise. And furthermore, those apostles are dead. We become superstitious. We become idolatrous. When we take the things that God himself has appointed and we isolate them from their broader redemptive context and then we isolate them over his word itself. There are a number of things that we have become superstitious with and superstitious about even as the people of God. Well that brings us to a a, a sixth thing and that is in verse 4. In verse 4... Notice that once they make, the elders make the decision, this is the reason we have lost the battle because we need the Ark of the Covenant. There is one more line of defense. The Ark of the Covenant is in the place of worship that is overseen by the priest that God himself has appointed. So even here's, here's what should protect the elders from their own, their, 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 their own impetuous nature. Here's what should prevent them from doing this dreadful thing in the presence of God. In the house of the Lord, there was the priesthood. In verse 4, it says, So the people sent to Shiloh and brought from there the ark of the covenant of the Lord of hosts, who is enthroned on the cherubim, and, the, and here's this throwaway line. And the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were there with the Ark of the Covenant of God. When, a, when people go wrong, it takes a lot of help in order for that to happen. Unfortunately, here is one of the direct correlations that we see with the building of the golden, golden calf in Exodus. In Exodus 32, when, when Moses is, is delayed in coming back down from the mountain, the people come to Aaron and say, we don't know what happened to this Aaron guy. Build us a God because we don't know, or this Moses guy, we don't know if he's coming back. And instead of rebuking them, Aaron conceded. Likewise, God has set up his anointed priesthood to guard the sacred things of God. It is the responsibility of the prophet as well as the priest to protect what God himself has set apart as sacred. In other words, here was another opportunity for God's people to, or for the priesthood to say, oh, no, 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 brothers, no, that's not how this works. As a matter of fact, if you read in Exodus when the, with the building of the Ark of the Covenant, they weren't even supposed to move it at any given time and they weren't supposed to move it in any given way. There was a particular way that it was to be transported. 
And so the sons of Eli who were the priests were serving in the priesthood. And this is one of the reasons the Lord was rare in speaking to them. Because even the priests had little regard for the word of God. I like what the Lord says in Jeremiah. He talks about uh, the false priests and the false prophets. He says, they, 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 the prophets, they prophesy in my name, and I, I haven't told them anything. And the priests, they've corrupted everything. And then he says this. He says, but my people love it that way. What an indictment. So here's what we see. The children of Israel go to battle, and they lose. That should be a sign that God is displeased. They do agree, the elders acknowledge that God has defeated them. But here's the quick fix solution. Rather than hearing from a living God who speaks to his people, let us bring in the Ark of the Covenant. And when the Ark of the Covenant, when they, they, they send to Shiloh to get the Ark of the Covenant, and God gives them one more opportunity, one more opportunity for his collective people to say, no, brothers, this is wrong. And instead of instead of Phineas and um, uh, uh, Phineas and and uh, and and, uh, and his brother doing the right thing, what they end up doing is conceding to the wishes and the whims whims of the people, and therefore they are not functioning properly as the priests of God. Michael Horton, our good friend and brother over the years. Uh, gave insight to something that I hadn't thought about often as it relates to the failure of Adam and Eve in the garden. And, and you know, we know that Adam was the first prophet, priest, and king. And I would argue that, I would have said prior, that, that w the, the failure of Adam in the garden is the failure of a king to exercise divine dominion that God had given him. But Michael Horton says that, yes, that's true, but in addition to that, Adam failed as a priest because he didn't keep the sanctuary pure. Because he didn't kick the serpent out. And likewise, these, these sons of, of, of Eli, which God has already rejected. In fact, the first prophecy that Samuel delivers is an indictment against Eli and his two sons. So therefore, we see here that the priests have an opportunity to speak up for truth. But instead of speaking up, they don't do anything. In fact, they give over the ark to the people. Well, that brings us to a seventh thing, and that's in verses 5 and 6. In verses 5 and 6, when Hophni and Phinehas has given over the ark to the people and they bring it into the camp, in verses 5 and 6 it says, And as soon as the ark of the covenant of the Lord came into the camp, then all Israel gave a mighty shout so that the earth resounded. And when the Philistines heard the noise of the shouting, they said, What does this great shouting in the camp of the Hebrews mean? And when they learned that the ark of the Lord had come into the camp, the Philistines were afraid. Of course they were. They were pagans. And they said, a God has come into the camp. And they said, woe to us. 
for nothing like this has happened before. But notice how they, 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 they shift this. In fact, if you go further, they begin by saying a God is in the camp identifying the ark itself with God, which in a sense God himself had done in an authorized way. But now it spreads. It says, woe to us who can deliver us from the power, notice this, of these mighty gods. So now these pagans see the Israelites as gods because of the presence of the ark. Here's what we have to understand, especially in verses 5 and 6. Human enthusiasm should not be confused with spiritual strength. Human enthusiasm should not be confused with spiritual strength. This is something else that parallels the story of the golden calf. Remember when Aaron got the golden calf finished and all of the people saw it and they shouted so much so that when Moses was coming down from the mountain, he says, what in the world is going on? No, that's not the sound of war. Oh, wait a minute. It's the sound of joy. And what are they joyful about? They're joyful about an idol as they worship God contrary to what God himself has required. One of the things that I think contemporary Christianity has to get clear on is that we confuse enthusiasm with spiritual intimacy and with spiritual strength. These people have never been weaker but they think they're okay. These people have never been more against the will and word of God, but yet they assume that God is on their side. In fact, they are convinced by virtue of the ark itself that God is with them, even though they have rejected his word, his word which he has exalted above all things. Well, that brings us to the final thing, and that is, the, the, the end of the story, which is not here, it actually comes, it'll, it'll be finished in the next chapter. But, but here, let, let's look down in verses 19 through 22. You see, this chapter begins with defeat, but it ends with a greater defeat. In chapter, in, in, uh, chapter 4, beginning in verse 19, it says, Now this, now his daughter... His daughter-in-law, the wife of Phineas, was pregnant and about to give birth. And when she heard the news that the ark of God was captured and that her father-in-law and her husband were dead, she bowed and gave birth for her pains came upon her. And about the time of her death, the women came uh, the women attending her said to her, "Do not be afraid, for you have become, or you have born a son. But she did not answer or pay attention. And she named the child Ichabod, saying, The glory has departed from Israel, because the ark of God had been captured, and because her father-in-law and her husband. And she said, The glory has departed from Israel, for the Lord the, the ark of God has been captured. Again, true, truth, and what's truth, uh, truthful or what's accurate and what's inaccurate. Here's what's true. The glory of the Lord had in a sense, to a degree, departed from his people. 
That much is true. But here's what's not true. It's not because the ark has been taken. The glory of the Lord, to whatever degree it has departed, has departed because the God who had refused to speak to them them at one time is now speaking to them. And the evidence of the glory of God departing from his people is that when God's word is available, they don't want it. The shame of Israel is not that the ark got stolen, and that is part of the story, that the the Philistines are motivated, and they come and they take the ark out of the presence, out of the camp of the Israelites, and they take it into their own camp, and you can read the next chapter and see what happens to it. But that we miss, we often miss what's, what's important here. What's important here is not that they take the ark to the temple of Dagon and then all of the idols are falling off the shelf. That's good. That's cute. But that's not the story. The shame and the tragedy of this story is that God's people have chosen a box over his word. God's people has a superstitious, superficial grasp on things that God himself has appointed even as they have refused to humble themselves to hear the word of the God who condescends to speak to them. Brothers and sisters, what is true of Israel in that day can be true of us even in our day. There are many that would rather have services of of anointings and deliverances and oil and breakthroughs and clapping and singing and running and praise dances and everything else and the word of God collects dust. Yes, it can be true of us that we can elevate anything that God has appointed for our good. We We can make it an end in itself. So much so that we raise it to the level of idolatry even as we reject what God himself has given. Brothers and sisters, when we reject God's word for anything else, doesn't matter if he has appointed it. It can be our buildings, it could be, it could be our positions, it could be our programs. When we elevate anything that God has appointed. In fact, one thing that has been popular over the last 50 years is to talk about Bibleolatry. How Christians have made an idol out of the Bible. And it's true that we can have a love for the Bible and no ear for the word of God. The Ichabod on the people of God is that they are spinning their wills in war. Because as Jesus says to the people of Jerusalem, if you only knew that which would bring you peace. But the issue is, what would bring them peace is made available to them. But they would rather worship the ark than the God of the ark. Yes, this story begins with the defeat, a defeat in war. But it ends with a greater defeat that the word of God, that they are willing to call on a prophet, tell me where the, my father's lost donkeys are. But they have no desire to hear God lead them in a way that would give them victory over the enemies. The people of God have rejected the word of God, even as God himself has clearly spoken 
through his prophet. I pray that we would learn from the mistakes of Israel, not the mistakes, the sins, and that we would never let anything be exalted over what God himself has exalted, which is his word in the gospel. And if we have his word, then we have enough. Let's pray. Our God and our Father, we come to you in the blessed name of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. We do thank you for this, our Lord's day, that you have given to us, that we would be strengthened from it. We pray that our interactions with our brothers and sisters have been edifying. We pray, Father, that as you have opened your word in our presence, that you, have, that you would indeed give us not only ears to hear in the moment, but by your spirit you would strengthen us to integrate these things into all of our thinking and in all of our doing, both here and when we go into our homes. Thank you, Father, for what you've given us in Christ. Continue to give us an ear and an appetite for your word, that we would be glorified and you or that you would be glorified and we would be edified. We thank you for all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen.